You are listening to National Security Law Today. So we're back for part two of our conversation with Robert Dannenberg, longtime intelligence professional and uh, Russia expert. So Robert, we're recording this month just one month after the president announced that we would be withdrawing troops from Germany and putting a small number of those troops in Poland. This might look like a move in the direction of ending NATO. At the same time, there appears to be increasing belief among the British press that the Brexit campaign was largely driven by Russian foreign interference. So what does this uh, speak to some trends about how Putin is going to be uh, continuing to undermine NATO and the EU? And, and what kinds of uh, activities should we expect uh, as far as um, his efforts to dismantle these, uh, these two organizations? Well, that's pretty pretty big questions there. Uh, there's plenty of evidence uh, that, in the case of the of Brexit, that that served uh, served Russia's interests, and uh, and in fact, the uh, the UK government just I think a month ago repeat, re- released a report which points towards significant efforts to on the part of Russia to manipulate Soviet, uh, manipulate, sorry, social media in, for, in favor of Brexit. Uh, and, you know, you know I, I tend to have my own point of view as to whether the Russian influence campaign was decisive in the Brexit vote. Uh, but nonetheless, there's no question about the Russian effort. And that ties into two things. Uh, one is uh, is weakening the EU. I mean, now you 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 wait. And we, I mean, we're, we've we've had the vote, and what are we now? Five years into the process of them actually getting out. Uh, but nonetheless, it, it certainly rattled the EU, and it and it it served as as ammunition for other states that have got problems with uh, with leadership of the EU uh, and directives out of Brussels. There's talk about an an Italian uh, effort to to leave the EU. Uh, there's been talk of uh, states, newly uh, new joiners in the EU in uh, Eastern Europe uh, leaving. Uh, there's obviously there's a Catalonian secessionist movement and some stirrings of uh, of efforts elsewhere in the in the uh, in the 26 nations of the EU to break it up and. As I mentioned in my last podcast, in Putin's view, there's no difference between NATO and the EU. Uh, on the question of U.S. troops, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted on this point. Uh, it, it, you know, Trump argues, and correctly, I might add, that the members states of NATO have an obligation that they signed up to to spend 2% of their gross domestic product on defense. And most of the states in NATO don't and haven't for a long time lived up to that um, that commitment that they made. And I, I think the president believes that the United States has, has uh, paid disproportionately to keep NATO running as an organization and stationing U.S. troops in um, in Europe is an expensive proposition. Anybody who's lived in Germany, I lived there for four years. I saw plenty of evidence of 
infrastructure built by the United States and, uh, and built and maintained by the United States to support U.S. troops uh, as part of a frontline effort to, um, to deter the Soviet, then the Soviet Union from a, an attack on Germany. Uh, and now we're in 2020 and, and Trump has consistently badgered our, our partners in NATO to live up to their 2% defense contributions. And, and he sees, in the case of Germany, we're talking about pulling, pulling troops out of Germany, he sees Germany building uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to pump Russian national gas, natural gas uh, directly to Germany through the Baltic Sea and avoiding uh, paying transit fees to the Ukraine, for example, a country where Russia has already occupied the Crimea and has exerted all kinds of uh, economic, political, and social pressure on the Ukraine. I mean, Putin, I mean, Trump is saying, wait a minute, we're paying for troops, U.S. troops to be stationed in Germany. At the same time, these guys are, are building a pipeline to import Russian natural gas and avoid the Ukraine, our, our you know, the, the country that we as, a, as we, the United States and the EU are sanctioning Russia in order to, to support, show support for the Ukraine. This seems incongruous to President Trump and, uh, and frankly to me as well. Um, I, I don't agree, you know, as a, as an observer of geopolitical risk, I don't agree that uh, that penalizing Germany by pulling U.S. troops out is is a smart course of action, and I think it's going to serve as fuel for future, uh, well, frankly, for current Russian efforts to continue to undermine support for NATO within uh, NATO countries. Um, the administration here will argue that some of those troops that are being pulled out of Germany are being deployed to other frontline locations, uh, the Baltic states and Poland, as you mentioned, uh, Yvette. Uh, you can make a cogent argument that Putin views the deployment of NATO troops to these countries as, a, as further uh, evidence of the aggressive intent of NATO and the and the challenge that Russia, Russia faces from a U.S.-led um, conspiracy to contain now the Russian Federation. And President Putin also appears to be enriching himself as his country has succumbed to a belief that he will restore lost Russian dignity. But we see uh, evidence such as um, what was viewed in the Panama Papers when they became public, uh, that his inner circle is hiding offshore wealth. We also talked in our previous episode last week about the uh, various wealthy Russians who have offshored their businesses. What role does corruption play in modern Russia and how has it served to enable and protect Putin? That's a, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, you can look at, um, there's all kinds of indices of the most corrupt nations on the planet. Russia features prominently uh, high on that list as one of the most corrupt countries uh, uh, on the planet, and certainly a, a, a country 10 time zones long, uh, as corrupt as Russia is. You can't expect somebody like Vladimir Putin, uh, as I mentioned in my last comments on the, on the last podcast, who sort of learned the corruption game early uh, during his role uh, in, in the mayor's office in St. Petersburg, and then in various positions in Moscow before he became 
uh, first deputy prime minister, prime minister, and president. He learned the game pretty well. And as, I, uh, as I've also discussed, one of the first things Putin did as president was, was rein in the, the uh, control of the oligarchs over pieces of the economy. And the price that you had to pay if you were an oligarch and uh, you wanted to stay in business, well, you wanted to make sure the boss had to get a cut. And there's no shortage of publicly available exposés of various aspects of Putin's wealth. Uh, and, uh, you know, various estimates of his personal wealth, putting him, you know, some will, will argue that he's actually the richest man on the planet. Some will say he's content to be in the top 10. Uh, at, at any rate, uh, the fact that he has, uh, you know, I think his, I think his sa official salary, uh, as it's listed in his Russian tax returns, is, is the equivalent of 150000 U.S. dollars a year. Uh, he's got a lot of assets for a guy who's making 150 K a year. Um, and, you know, reasonable people can disagree about exact methodology that Putin used to acquire this wealth and who holds it and where. Uh, but, uh, but there's no question that he gets a cut of every major enterprise in, uh, in the Russian Federation. Much of this was exposed, as you mentioned, Nicole, in the Panama papers. I'm glad you brought that up because the, uh, the the Russian view of that is a little bit different. And there'll be occasions, I think, maybe in my last podcast and this one where I articulate the Russian point of view on something. It doesn't mean that I'm a shill for Russia. It just means I understand how they look at the world. And when they, they see us pointing a finger at them for hacking into the DNC and releasing stuff to WikiLeaks that was embarrassing to the Democratic campaign, they see what the release of the Panama Papers as a CIA operation designed to do exactly the same thing to Russia. Now, just as a point of interest, and I don't want to digress too much, but I had a very senior former uh, Russian intelligence official tell me privately, and this guy was Putin's deputy when Putin was the head of the Russian Internal Security Service, and he was he was ex expressing frustration with the what what he called the Russia hysteria in the United States before the uh, 2016 election. And he pointed out to me in a little bit tongue in cheek, so work with me a bit here. But he said, look, it, we didn't write John Podesta's emails. We didn't tell the Democratic, uh, what was her name, Deborah Wasserman, we didn't tell her to rig the primary in Florida in favor of the Clinton campaign. Uh, we didn't tell senior Democratic Party officials to give the debate questions to Hillary Clinton in advance. All this stuff, which is exposed in one form or another uh, before the 2016 campaign. Goes, you Americans always say that you have the most transparent political system on the planet. And now you're beating up on us, the Russian Federation, for, give, for providing exactly the transparency that you guys always say that you have. I mean, again, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but he's saying, we didn't write these emails. Why are you beating us up about them having been exposed? When you guys did the same thing with the Panama Papers, attacking our president and senior leaders and, and our prime minister and senior leaders in Russia. I don't know. It's probably going to get some listeners crosswise, but I, the guy did say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, he's an intelligence officer, 
and he he went further out further on to elaborate. Look, look, influence operations have been in the toolkit of intelligence services for a long time, and you Americans have used them when it when it suits your purposes, and now you're getting a little bit of your own medicine fed back to you. Um, you, sh you should be congratulating us for a job well done. Wow. Um, so, uh, and I mean, it's public now, but there were um, U.S. external efforts, you know, to influence campaigns in other countries that went successfully, uh, though without the accelerant of social media in that time. Um, but let, let's pivot for just a second, which is we stand today faced with the fact that we're still vulnerable. We're still divided. Um, Americans susceptible to influence in the words of, of one of the women at uh, Cambridge Analytica um, still constitute a significant portion of the population, particularly the older population and individuals living in rural environments. So we're standing here today right now and it doesn't feel as if we've done much to check Russia. Um, have we sufficiently understood Russia um, in terms of our, our institutions and our leaders? And um, do you think we've uh, responded with any policies that might check Putin's behavior? And finally, I think from my perspective, I'd like to hear your response to the secret meeting that President Trump thought um, was not uh, a bad idea uh, when he met alone uh, with Putin, who was who a man of many skills and talents um, and so on. What are your thoughts? You know, the question about how we've interacted with Putin since he's been president of the Russian Federation or how we interacted with the Russian Federation under Yeltsin's presidency is one that's going to be studied by historians uh, for a long, long time. And it might even be too soon to give you a, a direct answer to your question. Uh, I would say that the Russian perspective is that is that under Yeltsin, the United States ruthlessly exploited uh, the opportunity of a chaotic Russia to try and, and uh, shut down Russian nuclear weapons programs, to steal their technology, um, to, to uh, put U.S. Uh, educated individuals uh, in charge of key institutions and key places in the Russian economy or influence Russians to go back to Russia and assume those positions. I mean, uh, you can argue the other side of that, that coin that we were just doing, we, we, were, we were worried about loose nukes in Russia and, uh, and there was, that was a genuine concern and a legitimate concern. And all our efforts to influence security of Russian nuclear weapons were designed to prevent terrorists from getting those weapons. And efforts that we made to educate Russians in free market economies uh, were perfectly legitimate efforts to help uh, fulfill the desire, the expressed public desires of the then Russian President Boris Yeltsin to build a free market economy and integrate Russia with the West. So you can, there's sort of two sides of the, of the equation. Putin and the guys who are running Russia now take that former view that I just expressed, that everything that the United States did in the years of Yeltsin's presidency was designed to undermine and keep Russia as a vassal state. And that's a term that the Russians use. I'm not making this up now. So when you're dealing with 
a guy like Putin, whose whose worldview is shaped by his training as a KGB officer and his experiences shredding papers at the Russian consulate in Leipzig as Western intelligence officers, many of my former colleagues and myself included, were pouring into East Germany, trying to get their hands on classified Soviet and classified East German Stasi documents. Absolutely true, we were doing that. And then he sort of, you know, left his career as an intelligence officer and went back and joined politics. Um, but the, the impressions, uh, uh, you know, some personal emotional of, of being on the losing side uh, is, you know, it was deep, uh, made a deep, deep impression on Putin and, and his closest team, two names of which are you know, fairly well known, Sergei Ivanov, uh, former head of the Russian presidential administration, former KGB first chief directorate officer, uh, and former Russian minister of defense, uh, and Nikolai uh, Patrushev, the head of the Russian national security, a guy who succeeded Putin when as the head of the Russian internal security service. These guys are vocal critics of how the United States treated Russia uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union and are deeply suspicious, remain deeply suspicious of, uh, of uh, NATO and, and American cultural influence operations. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, Russian efforts to manipulate US social media before the 2016 election and arguably long before that. Um, the Russians look at it and they say, they look at the pervasive influence in Russia of of Western culture, and they view this as undermining Russia in every respect. Things that we, uh, I, I think, have 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 come to take as sort of second nature, uh, you know, gay rights, uh, same-sex marriage, things like this, are abhorrent to Putin and his whole team. And they view that, that they view our efforts to promote the justness of the, the LGBT. Uh, movement as 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 part of an effort by the United States to undermine Russian values. I mean, I, I don't think it has anything to do with it at all, but it's, we're not talking about my perspective. I'm just talking about the Russian perspective. And you want to know why. So when Putin says, I've got an opportunity to play this game back at the, at the Americans and exacerbate ras- racial divisions, uh, think Ferguson, Missouri, you pick your spot. And and it works, and it costs me basically nothing. And the and the, the response of the Americans has been to publicize this, melt them, themselves, melt down their political system, and okay, maybe some occasional sanctions. You put the the April 2017 CATSA countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act. I mean, stuff like this. Russia, you know, Putin, Putin looks at looks at at U.S. sanctions on Russia as nothing more than an attempt to to contain Russia, to keep it as a subservient state and not allow it to, to return to its position, its, its historically and militarily earned position as, as a, another center of power in the world. Um, and so we should absolutely expect, you know, one of the, another point on sanction that it shouldn't be lost on observers, Putin's family came from St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg was starved for hundreds of days and surrounded by the Germans in the Second World War. I had a Russian intelligence officer tell me, tell me once, he goes, you guys think you're going to 
you're going to intimidate Putin by sanctioning him. You don't understand. His family came from St. Petersburg. They were starved in the Second World War. You're not going to, you're going to do this guy, intimidate this guy through sanctions. And, well, we've been sanctioning Russia since May of 2014. Hasn't changed Putin's behavior much. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing it, but we shouldn't have any misunderstanding about its impact on a guy like Putin. The real point of your question is how should we be dealing with him? And a lot of criticism about Trump over the Helsinki meeting, and I think justified. It's irresponsible, in my view, for a U.S. president to go alone in a room for a couple of hours with a trained foreign intelligence officer as skilled as Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, I, it, but Trump probably did it and it, because he's got supreme confidence in his ability at, to persuade people. American presidents, and Trump's not alone in this, view themselves as tremendously charismatic individuals. And, and the power of their personality, if not the substance of their arguments, is going to persuade foreign leaders to, uh, to adopt a more sympathetic position towards, uh, towards the United States. Well, that might work in some cases. And by the way, Clinton and Obama and Bush all had that same uh, type of interaction with Russian leaders, whether it was Yeltsin or Putin and arguably with, with the same results. But Clinton, Obama, and Bush were smart enough or surrounded by smart enough advisors to never let themselves get put in a position where they're two hours in a room with a foreign leader as crafty as Putin. And Putin, you know, he's got a, you can like him or dislike him, but he's a trained intelligence officer. He's got an orderly mind. And you put him in a room with a guy where Putin has had the opportunity to, to use the intelligence briefings that he gets from his service about Trump's personality, about whatever combination of intelligence has been gathered on Trump, you can be sure that Putin had absorbed that and knew exactly which buttons to push when there were no note takers in the room. So I think that's, that's danger. And if I had been the director of the Central Intelligence Agency or his national security advisor at the time, I would have absolutely said, if you go into that room alone, this is my last day on the job. So Rob, you brought up a whole bunch of interesting points. Um, I, I really would like to, uh, to uh, talk about, you know, like the way we should approach uh, Russia, um, at least for the, for the very present day. Um, American hypocrisy notwithstanding, right? Just taking that off the table. Um, what should we be doing uh, about the 2020 elections, which are rapidly approaching? Um, we have not managed to include a lot of um, funding, resources, um, attention to the chagrin of, of many, frankly, on, on both sides of the aisle uh, to, um, to uh, provide additional resilience against the attacks that we saw uh, in the last election. What are our vulnerabilities for this one coming up? Well, you know, that's, that, that's a, also a big question of that. I, I mean, one thing is for sure, uh, foreign adversaries of the United States have recognized the vulnerabilities in our political system. And and as we as we've commented on extensively in this in the previous podcast, uh, have become quite adept at at using um, and influencing social American social media to affect dissension in the United States. 
now you know they we have the covid situation as well which is uh, undoubtedly going to lead to a significant number of the voters in this coming election choosing to vote by mail um, and there's people that agree or disagree with with that trend uh, on both sides of the political spectrum but looking at the problem as an intelligence officer if i were vladimir putin I would for sure uh, fabricate a couple of thousand of ballots, not forge them cleverly enough to get through the system, but cleverly enough to be discovered. And, and I, would, I would take a, some of my operatives active in the United States and I would drop them in mailboxes in critical districts around the country and just wait for the inevitable, inevitable discovery of those fake ballots by one side or the other, doesn't matter, holding them up on the day after the election saying, look at this false falsified ballot. And, and you can, you don't have to put Cyrillic text in there. There's a lot of things you can do, false flag it. Um, and, and just really drive a dagger in the US political system. Um, and I just think we should be aware of that possibility and not necessarily be alarmed uh, by it. Some, some uh, independent observers believe that, the, that Russia fabricated 22 million ballots in the, uh, in the July 1st referendum. 22 million ballots, think about that. Well, they don't need to fabricate 22 million ballots to have an effect on the US political system in 2020. A couple of thousand will do. Um, so how do you how do you prevent this? That's really a good question. Uh, I th I think you need to be prepared to be more. I mean, part of part of the challenge we face these days is that our relations with so many of our allies have deteriorated over the last twelve years for one reason or another, uh, whether it's tariffs or. Um, our policy in Syria, whatever it might be, we, we, we've got much worse relationships with, with, um, with or the war in Iraq, whatever it might have been, uh, with, with a, a number of key countries around the world that whatever happens in 2020, the next president of the United States or the next administration, whether it's Trump or not, they need to get their heads around how we start uh, rebuilding our alliances. And the, the point I'm coming to here is if you want to influence a guy like Vladimir Putin, you can't do it alone. You got to have partners. And it's got to be the states that mean something to Putin. Um, you can, you can, you know, we, we threw Russia out of the G8. Uh, okay, that stung. Uh, but there are other things that have gone on in this, in this period where we've been sanctioning Russia over the Crimea that we should have never allowed to happen. We should have never let them host uh, the World Soccer Cup. They shouldn't be in the G20. If, if Putin's going to act like a pariah, uh, Russia should be treated like a pariah state. We shouldn't let our European partners build a natural gas pipeline with Russia. We should provide alternatives for natural. We, we should be building a global coalition in some way replicating what we did during the Cold War uh, to put pressure on Putin. And we should also make no secret of the fact that we're going to support uh, one form or another of regime change in Russia. There's plenty of information that could be released 
or di discovered and released on Putin's personal wealth and corruption uh, and the part of key members of his team. We, you know, we got to take the gloves off, in my opinion. If he's going to take the aggressive actions that we've been talking about to undermine our political system, then we should do the same thing to Russia. Okay, well, I, I think we have a policy roadmap for the next administration uh, there, Rob. I'm not a policy guy. Works for me. All right, but uh, there is one question that I have that I'm going to ambush you with a little bit, which is that uh, about, a, about four weeks ago, there were reports that Russia was trying to steal vaccine research. And as recently as yesterday, they have announced, guess what? We have a vaccine, perfect vaccine with no testing. Um, what are your thoughts about that claim um, and its likely veracity? Yeah, I've I've been joking today with a, a number of foreign former colleagues about uh, Russia's plan to roll out a, a a vaccine, a COVID nineteen vaccine, starting in October. Um, look at the fastest fastest vaccine uh, developed uh, in in history is two is two years. Okay, we've got a Manhattan a global Manhattan project style effort to to make a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, and, it, and, you know, I think there are, there's at least a half a dozen efforts that are pretty far along and going into phase three trials. And so we might well have a vaccine early in 2021 in which we can have confidence. And that's the key point. I mean, let me put it this way to the listeners out there, would any of you want yourselves to be vaccinated with a Russian-produced COVID-19 vaccine? Would you buy a Russian toaster? Would you buy a Russian automobile? Are you comfortable flying in a Russian airplane? If the answer to any of those questions is no, then you shouldn't get yourself injected with this vaccine. And I fear for the Russian population uh, what's going to happen in terms of side effects or after effects from vaccinating on a mass scale. Um, an untested vaccine, a vaccine that hasn't been through stage three testing. Um, I, I think it's irresponsible and it's a way for Putin to uh, display some bravado to, I hope, in or as he might hope, to restore some of the luster and, and the internal criticism that he received for Russia's mishandling of the virus, which is, um, which has been massive. So, uh, so Rob, I guess a couple points. Um, the thirty-year-old Lada that I was tooling around um, in Ethiopia and held up pretty well. Had some bric-a-brac on it. it was a pretty festive-looking thing. Um, but I wouldn't buy one under any circumstances. So, but I think a couple takeaways. Yeah, that's, remember that the history of the Lada is basically a Fiat-designed automobile. I did not know that. I, I always uh, figured it was one of those things that during communism was brought in by the Russians. Um, but I, I guess, um, so uh, among other things, everyone should continue this patriotism by riding their bikes to work as, as I do. Um, but uh, this has been incredible. And I would be very interested after the election to have you back to see where we are. Um, because right now, um, I view you as a prescient um, and I suspect that much of what you have predicted here will be true. I would add, after we had a scoping call with you and you suggested um, that a, a, the strategy regarding um, obviously false ballots, there was such a case of that occurring. Um, and I don't remember if it was in a swing district, um, but I do believe that it was. 
So thank you very much. We're really glad you came in. Thank you guys for having me. This has been a lot of fun. You guys have been great. Thank you for joining us today. And um, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. We're going to be back next week with more serious content. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback and find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever we can to keep you informed, give you context on these fast-moving legal developments so you don't have to reach for anything more than your smartphone or laptop screen. And don't forget, we said it at the top of the show, but we'll say it again. The lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone, and be safe. We are all in this together. Boy, did those words never mean more than right now. (laughs) We're all in this together, even though we're apart, even though we all have different views. Let's come together through education, knowledge, and growth. See you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.